This is the MagicWordPodcast.com. Hello, this is Scott Wells for the MagicWordPodcast.com. This week's episode actually has two sponsors. First of all, we want to thank the Friends of the Magic Word who are responsible for making this podcast happen week after week with their financial pledges. And this week, we want to welcome two of our newest Friends of the Magic Word, Dan Fleshman and Michael Noonan. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Mike. I appreciate your support and putting your money where your ears are. For anyone else who is interested in learning about how that you can become a friend of the Magic Word, please just check the website at themagicwordpodcast.com, and you'll figure it out from there. Our second sponsor this week is the Winter Carnival of Magic, which is going to be in Pigeon Forge coming up in March the 9th through the 11th here of this year. And we will be speaking with Tom Vorchahan shortly during this podcast. We'll be interrupted with just a short message, and he'll tell you a little bit more about the convention that's going to be coming up. And also, if you go to the convention page, that is when you go to the com and you go to our convention guide, you can see a little bit more about what's happening at the convention, and you can also click on the audio there. It's a little bit longer, kind of a promo, about 10 minutes long, roughly, and it will give you more information on what all is going to be going on this year at the Winter Carnival of Magic. Speaking of that, uh, next week we'll be attending the Magi Fest, and we'll be having some daily reports coming up from there, so be sure and tune in for that. But you are here this week to hear this week's episode from our guest. When we were at another convention this past year at the Texas Association of Magicians Convention in Fort Worth, Texas, we spoke with Jeanette Andrews, who was one of the people who was part of the talent of the at the convention there and I was just blown away by her performance. I just thought it was so unique, so interesting and artistic that it was well worth talking with her about how she developed this act. And actually what a lovely young lady to talk with and how knowledgeable that she is having been mentored by Eugene Berger. In this podcast she talks quite a bit extensively actually about Eugene Berger and what he had taught her and how that she had developed her act, as well as how he not only influenced her performance style, but also her lifestyle. So along with that, she talks again about how she has actually kind of found a niche market among people who are patrons of the arts and who go to museums, and how she has structured her very artistic kind of performance. Well, I'm not going to give too much away. I want you to hear directly from her. So please welcome my guest this week, Ms. Jeanette Andrews here on The Magic Word. This morning we are headed in Fort Worth, Texas for the Texas Association of Magicians annual convention. And this is uh, over Labor Day weekend. So those of you overseas, that means it's going to be September the 2nd through the 5th this particular year of 2022. And again, as I said, we're in Fort Worth where there were 250 registrants uh, gathered uh, to see some uh, top magicians around who were performing and lecturing and uh, dealers as well as registrants. A lot of people who are attending the convention just because it's great to see friends. And that's uh, what a lot of these conventions are about. We can be 
convene with one another and we commune with one another and get an opportunity to see each other uh, it just uh, usually uh, annually sometimes we see each other throughout the year perhaps at club meetings or other conventions or anything everything else but this particular podcast is a little bit unique because we've opened it up to the registrants for anyone interested to come to see how the sausage is made and basically how we do these podcasts how they're recorded how they're put together as far as trying to work with a, uh, a guest and also record everything and so this morning we've in, again invited some people and so we've got a, a little room of people over here so welcome thank you guys very much for being here <laughs> there we go Wow, got a room full of people. That's great. And, and they're excited as I am to greet our guest then today from New York uh, State. And uh, she is someone that I've been wanting to talk with for a long time and someone who I had not uh, had on my radar until recently. And uh, she certainly is high on there right now and close to us. And here she is right now, Jeanette Andrews. Hi, Jeanette. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. <laughs> You're welcome. And thank you very much for joining us. This has been great. So New York, you're in New York City, actually? Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Did you grow up there in New York? I did not. I'm from okay. Chicago. Um, hence, which, hence the accent. Which <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you don't sound like a Chicago. I mean, you don't sound like a New Yorker, you know, exactly. So uh, in Chicago, uh, earlier, I remember you were talking in your lecture, which was fabulous, and we'll get into some of those details a little bit later, but uh, you Thank were you. a student of uh, Eugene Berger, who was a mentor. Yeah. Uh, How was that? Oh, God, I feel wildly fortunate to even be able to say that. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, he was an incredible person, um, you know, obviously amazing magician, but just a right. phenomenal human being who I think had um, probably just as big, if not bigger of an impact on me as a person, um, you know, in addition to as a magician. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just... I mean, as a person, when you're saying it was kind of off grid, when it wasn't, when you weren't just yeah, in I card mean, tricks, just, it was just yeah, life I in mean, general. Just, you a, know, yeah, I mean, I had known him since, you know, so basically since I was a kid. And, um, but I, I didn't really, you know, I, I kind of knew Eugene Moore, got to know Eugene Moore through um, a show that sadly is no longer happening, but is was called Magic Chicago. So it was almost like the Monday Night Magic I remember of that. Chicago. Yeah, 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 that preceded that. Yeah, yeah uh, Benjamin Barnes worked yes, that church. Yes, mm-hmm. and Ben Barnes to this He's day. Great guy. He's one of my dearest friends. I yeah. spoke to him extensively on the phone last night. Um, I bet he'll be listening to this episode. He probably <laughs> will. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. Um, uh, no, we've been, he's been one of my dearest friends since mm-hmm. I was like 15, 16 years old. And um, and so um, so I started, um, I performed in Magic Chicago for the first time when I was, I think, 15. And so I started kind of getting involved in that orbit. Mm-hmm. And then, and you know, Eugene was one of the advisors for the show and was always around and, you know, would, be at the performances and would give me feedback and you know and so I just was very fortunate to start to get to know him um, in my teens and you know for anyone who was lucky enough to know him he had such a um, you know just very interesting and impactful ways in his philosophies for living and how Mm -hmm. he viewed the world and how he viewed treating other people and um well, he studied philosophy and theology, exactly. and so I would imagine to some extent he was also an advisor mm-hmm. to you as far as some of your in personal life. I mean, he was probably giving advice. It's not like, here's how you do a double lift, which... Right. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, he was one of those people that to a certain extent was very uh, interested in, you know, the big picture of life. And he was somebody who I feel like really mm-hmm. led by example. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, I can go, go into a lot of the, you know, I'm like, we'll, we'll just cut cut straight straight into it um you know a lot of the ways that you know he personally influenced me I think you know I mean he was 
um, you know, ex- an extreme minimalist. Um, Good point. Which you know, just in did he live that way also when yes, you visited his very home? Much. I mean, yes, very I Spartan. Mean, for anybody, so. yeah, for anybody hmm. who's you know seen a lot of images, like in some of the dust jacket images right. of his books and things like that, you see, you know, you see um, slices of his apartment, which is that's very much what it was. Hmm. Um, but no, I think for anybody, um, you know. I, I think, you know, so he had a very minimalist lifestyle in terms of how really the only thing that he sort of, um, like physical objects that he would really bring into his space were books. And then even those, he would sort of move them through his system in a way that he would have, you know, have a book, read a book. And then if obviously a lot, he kept things that were meaningful to him. And then if there were things that he felt like, somebody else in his sphere would benefit from more than he um you know as a reference book for the future he would give those books away so he was constantly interesting yeah it was like a really pay it forward pass it it, exactly exactly and so Hmm. you know or or even a lot of times he would you know he lent books to people constantly as i think we all do especially for rare magic books and so it was you know so he had um, you know, the main thing he sort of had was this library. He lived in the same apartment in Chicago for like 40 years or something that was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, something that I really, you know, kind of took from him. You know, I mean, it was a very probably 400 square feet tops. Right. Um, and that's really how I have always lived my adult life. I mean, when I lived in Chicago. Well, you're in New York and it's probably expensive. I mean. <laughs> it's wildly expensive. I mean, yeah. when I first saw Seinfeld and I thought, well, it's a nice place. Oh. And I've talked to people and apparently that must have been a very expensive, not that, realistic. Oh, that was not realistic <laughs> whatsoever. I mean, any any apartment that they show in any, like, especially like 80s, 90s sitcoms in New York. Friends you know, somebody that, Right. Yeah. Somebody did the math on like the Friends apartment. It would be, it is physically impossible possible for any of them who to have lived in the apartment in that location with the jobs they had it was just yeah, impo- no it's way like they totally it. there's it, you know <laughs> without them going into extreme debt yeah. um you know and so for me when i lived in chicago you know i lived in about a 350 square foot apartment right downtown or whereabouts what, pretty much suburb? yeah i was in yeah. no, no i was in um Off basically um lincoln park oh, okay. like lincoln park nice east area. lakeview um and you know loved my neighborhood it was a fabulous area um, Isn't that kind of where they had the uh, exhibition in 1893 back the Columbia exhibition? Yeah, was World's Fair. The, World's um, Fair there in, in the yeah, a little bit Lincoln south Park. of there. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, but but some of it. Yeah, but Lincoln Park was one of the sites of it, and mm-hmm. actually some of the structures are still there. Yes. Um, one um, one is the um, Lincoln Park Conservatory. That's a big. You know, it's a big glass. You know, conservatory structure right. that's still there and it's beautiful. And then the Lincoln Park Zoo actually has a lot of those remaining structures. And I did a performance in one of them. Um, did you? Yeah, it was really, really cool. It's a space um, uh, called Brower Hall. And it's, um, but yeah, it was built. In the zoo? Area. Yeah, it's technically owned by the zoo, but it's mainly used as like a venue for different, like, like you know, it's an event venue. An event venue. I recall several years uh, when Frances Marshall used to have a column in Linking Ring called Around Chicago, and she was talking about different things. that and Annually, they would have, uh, I think it was a boo at the zoo or whatever, and there was something also that they had a fundraiser for the local magic club would do, uh, Magic Weekend or something, mm-hmm. and they did things all the way around there. 
Which, by the way, speaking way back to the uh, uh, the Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair, there's a book, if people haven't read it, it's called The Devil in the White City. Had you ever read that? I have not. Ooh, no. I'd recommend I, that. I know. I, th- I feel like I'm the only native Chicago in that you're familiar has with not it. read it. Yes, okay, yes, okay. yes. I know uh, it's great. Yeah, not just magicians. I just uh, recommend that. It's an interesting uh, book because it talks in one chapter about uh, how the World's Fair came to Chicago mm-hmm. instead of being in New York and also how the gardens were made and all the politics and everything behind it. And then the alternate chapters were about H.H. H. Holmes, who right. was the first American serial killer mm-hmm. um, and who was the devil. Amazing book, the way that contrasted back and forth. Anyhow, I didn't, getting that's off topic. More, that's more than I knew about the structure of it. Oh, I didn't mm-hmm. realize that so much of it centered around the World's Fair. I thought, that, I thought that it was mainly about H.H. Holmes, and that's what I thought like no. almost the entire book was about. Nope. So that's interesting, and I didn't realize it no, alternated. The, the history in that way. part of that, even if you skip a chapter and go to the next, and you just you no. Know, I mean, read, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in the whole thing, honestly. But <laughs> yeah. um, because but, it goes along the same chron- I, chronologue. You know. Okay, but I didn't realize it delved so much into like the history of the spaces. Oh yeah, you know like, that's how interesting. Well, Bill Hickok came and all the, uh, huh. the different uh, exhibits and how they were, uh, came over and the problems they had, you know, politically, yeah. and, and of course the way that the city was built as the white city, but it was bur- built as a temporary structure. Right. And I mean, they did. Have have a big fire and all these different things mm-hmm. that happen and yeah that's it, uh okay we're getting deep into the weeds and nothing to do with magic but no it's no 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 but now 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 <laughs> I, I, I mean I've, I've, your next read. I've, I've had so many people i mean obviously people are constantly like oh you have you read this book do you need to read this book and i'm like yeah i've got you know other things i've got oh, you yeah. know a massive stack you know yeah. like everybody <laughs> and um and i'm like eh, you know but i did but that Sounds a lot more interesting than I mm-hmm. thought it was. Devil in the White to City. To be honest. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Uh, so, with that, when you were uh, talking with uh, uh, Eugene, mm-hmm. so it was n- not through Jeff McBride, obviously, it was him hanging around uh, yeah, Magic hanging Chicago. Yeah, around Magic and okay. Magic Chicago. And, okay. Yeah. And then he was uh, teaching you uh, lessons. Did you go to his home then for was, lessons, or was, was it just. I uh, was actually not like a formal student of his. Mm-hmm. So, there, were, there certainly was, um, you know, sort of cohort of people in Chicago that were like formal students of his that would like go to his home for lessons and it was a much more like structured thing and I will be the first to say I was not one of those people Mm -hmm. um you know because that was like a very um you know that was like a a kind of special group of people um that I just uh, you know it was um, structured I'm sure also that each week you had certain things you had to accomplish and come back next week yeah so mm. I didn't I didn't like you know I didn't sort of I don't want to say, like, get the benefit of that, but sort of. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I was, like, very young and didn't yeah. have the money for that either. So <laughs> I'm sure when you're, like, you know, too. 18 or whatever. <laughs> um, but um, but all that being said, you know, he still would show extreme generosity to mm-hmm. me. And, you know, a lot of times we would... You Encouragement. Know, mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he had, you know, Eugene had so much genuine honesty with me in a way that I think was, you know, maybe... Maybe a little different than you know than people maybe think of him as um, or something, um, but I but I think it, he was a generous guy. What do you mean? Oh no no and uh, and, and honesty. Okay. Um, uh, no, he was always just the kindest, most generous, like gentle person. Um, but I think I think like with feedback, I think he'd be a little more like let's cut through the niceties here and I'll just tell you like I'm not going to like sugarcoat anything here mm-hmm. and um, which you know of course at the time like feels bad um, <laughs> you know and oh, when yeah. you're like okay we're just going to like you know kind of dig into me for an hour here but um, especially if there are other people around would he ever no no w- would he ever no, chastise it was you in always, front of people no god no when he mm. never chastised me I'll be mm. very honest okay. I'll be very very clear about that but um, 
But no, I think there was the thing with a lot of a lot of things when you know Eugene was sort of known for his structure of almost like the compliment sandwich of being like, here's mm-hmm. things you did great, and then here's what you need to work on, and then here's you know other stuff. And and um, you know, candidly, he wasn't always that way with me. A lot of times, it was just like, here's the stuff you need to work on. And but again, it was always said with kindness and, and generosity, yeah. and I knew it was because. I knew it was coming from a place, um, for, you know, I mean, first of all, it was, you know, we had a very open dialogue about me wanting feedback from him. I think that's a really important thing that needs to be talked about more in magic is like solicited and unsolicited feedback. What do you think about um, that as far as like sometimes you see someone showing and think, boy, they really could use some help, and but you don't want to go and talk to them. On the other hand, should you talk to them? Or I would never. Unless I, they ask you. I would never give somebody feedback unless they ask me, I, ever. I, I might make notes, but if they ask me, I'll say, yep, I got some notes, but if they don't ask, they'll never know. I wouldn't. I would never. Um, so are you suggesting people, magicians who are listening to this should solicit feedback i think i think i've had a lot i've had extensive conversations about this with Mm -hmm. people in my life after some recent performances i've done about being incredibly selective about the people that you as a performer solicit exactly Mm -hmm. um otherwise you're going in every direction right it's like then you get into a too many cooks in the kitchen situation you get um you get too many you know types of you know, types of people in terms of whatever their background is, whatever their knowledge is. It's, it's, you can't listen to too many types of feedback mm-hmm. because then it's just, it, it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, and so, um, I had a, a, I'm like, I don't think he'll mind me talking about this cause he's just right. Um, is, uh, one of my other closest friends in magic, uh, Matthew Holtclaw, who I think is one of the most brilliant close-up magicians on the planet. Um, is he in New York? He's in New York. Yeah. Um, he does the most like killer cups and balls routine you will ever see. Um, and, um, I'd like to see it cause I've seen some good ones. I know we all have. <laughs> his is, his is great. His yeah, is right up Justin there. Latimer. Um, but, um, Jason. yeah, no, he's, um, well, we had a conversation about this, about being very selective and like picking, you know, just a couple of people who either you are explicitly paying to give you feedback mm-hmm. um, or people who you know extraordinarily well and who have, you know, even if they don't have a similar, um, you know, they either have to have a similar, um, you know, sort of technical background to you or uh. artistic sensibility to you or people who just truly 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 have your best interests at heart and Mm -hmm. maybe know you well personally sort of one of those three things because otherwise if you're getting people where like for example you know i was also very fortunate to know simon aronson and you know simon would give me feedback a lot and so like simon and i have very different styles however you know Simon, because we had. You mean you don't have your own stack deck? I don't. I wish. Um, you don't uh, do a uh, two-person mind oh reading God. With, oh, like with Jenny. I wish. I wish. Um, it's the best. Jenny is yeah. also a dear She's friend. Wonderful. I adore that woman. Yeah. Um, and so we, um, you know, it's so like Simon and I had very different, you know, sort of technical um, backgrounds and leanings. Mm-hmm. But you know, his his ways in which he would. You know, problem solve, um, obviously, were just so incredible. And Simon um, always had my best interests at heart, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I knew he would always be honest. insanely honest with me. Yeah. 
and had my best interests at heart. So he would, you know, kind of come at things, you know, from a more like perpendicular angle to maybe somebody like maybe like Eugene, who maybe did more similar types of magic to me. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, so it's helpful to have, you know, slightly differing, you know, type maybe types of magic or types of backgrounds what but about people outside of magic in other words that yes. since you have an artistic we'll get into right. this deeply later but as far as some of the the art interest in art do you have some people in the art community uh, yes who would you would solicit their absolutely okay. absolutely and so yeah so then it's the same thing where then you go okay here's somebody who i can ask their opinion because either they though they're not a magician they have mm-hmm. a similar artistic sensibility to what right. I'm doing. Maybe they're a writer and they write in a similar way that I do. So they, they're not, I'm not asking their feedback they on magic. a different kind of critical eye from what they're exactly. looking at. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're, right. they're not looking, I'm not asking them feedback on magic. I'm mm-hmm. asking them feedback on like, does this make sense? Or mm-hmm. does the writing on this make sense? Or, you know, does, you know, the way in which this is laid out make sense? Or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that again, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. bringing their own set Aste- of expertise. And aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And aesthetics and whatever makes sense, um, but it's very like you know, trying to be just very selective on who you're listening to, and why and you know how how people bring their different sets of expertise to the table, mm-hmm. um, you know, with kindness and generosity to like help everybody get better. And I think that's the whole thing is also like people's intention in in giving feedback, you know. Well, before I get too far away from Eugene, I wanted to ask yeah. you what I think some uh, burning questions might be from someone yeah, in the course. audience. What was one of the best pieces of advice oh, you received from Eugene? Unquestionably, yeah. there's one that, um, and um, I, I referenced this um, in my lecture on Friday, but, you know, I used to do very overly complicated, very overwrought, overworked magic when I was a teenager. I'd be like... You try and prove something or try and learn something? Trying to, I mean, you know, like any teenager when, you know, like. Meet the challenge? Yeah, kind of. And, And like any teenager when you're like, you know, if you're like. I've never been in a band, but like if you are and you're like, oh, I'm going to try to learn like the craziest thing and then do this thing that's really weird and try to make it make sense. Like whatever, where I'd be like, I'm going to turn, you know, uh, a pile of rubber bands into a flower petal and then the flower petals are going to whatever, like whatever. (laughs) And I don't know. I was doing all this stuff that was very convoluted and was also and then I also was doing some stuff that um technically was kind of like iffy like stuff where you were like this is not like it's has more room for error yeah Yeah, like things that were like a little too lighting dependent or like things like that and um and so I was kind of doing all of this stuff around the same time and um and I had a really disastrous performance I was like 18 literally had tried I'm like can I how many well, I don't, I don't want to say what happened, um, but but something <laughs> massively failed. Um, I was like, I don't know how many. Well, lay, the magicians are listening to this. Basically. I, okay, yeah. I was like, I don't know how many lay people are no, listening not many, to this. Okay. If any. Um, well, anyway, just in case, I'm like, I'll probably share this with lay people, so I don't want to okay. say. Oh. But um, but like, something very serious problem happened the during broke. this performance. <laughs> Let's say, for an example. Um, <laughs> and um, and then uh, and then. Eugene and I talked after that and you know and I think he had probably seen me like fail spectacularly a number of times but this is the worst (laughs) and um and he was like and he was like Jeanette there's the way of the potter and the way of the sculptor and -hmm. he just paused and like looked at me with his very like dramatic Eugene Lee look Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there and my like teenage brain is just like 
Okay. And then he just kind of like glances at me and he's like, the, the potter adds and the sculptor chips away. And I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. And, and so that to this day is like almost like the guiding principle of my life. Um, and, you know, there's so much because I kept just being like, oh, I can add this into this routine. I can add this into this routine and it's going to make it more interesting. Mm. And at least for me and my style, like it really doesn't, and it really doesn't help. And, um, and I think one of the things that, you know, that like even this most recent like a series of performances I was doing in New York, which um, I can talk about later if mm-hmm. we get there. Yeah. Um, but um, it's called Taken by Artificial Surprise. And I was working on like, um, I also had like a full um, art installation piece as part of it. And there were things that I was like looking at like in the gallery and I was like, you know what? No, like I'm just getting rid of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I, I literally had spent like, hundreds of hours and money and time and like extensive stuff and when I just stood there and I was just like nope gonna throw it away throw yeah, it out take yeah, it out yeah take it out cause Eugene's sitting on your shoulder exactly. saying he's be sitting, the sculptor yes he's sitting on my shoulder all the time being like be the sculptor be the sculptor Jeanette be the sculptor mm-hmm. like well, he lived that way, as you were just talking about, how he right. was so Spartan in his apartment and giving away things. Instead of keeping things, right. he would keep the knowledge and then pass that on exactly. to someone else that way. And so you have that, you know, that him well, in your ear. Is, I have him in my ear all the time. And, you know, and I think, you know, not only, you know, as we all are familiar with, you know, obviously he's not only like that personally, but then was like that with his magic as well and just mm-hmm. his performance style. And so I think, you know, that, you know, just that whole idea, you know, was something that, so just so beautiful to me and just you know is is proved extremely right. helpful right right well did, did you work in the chicago uh magic lounge then also after not really i did or he had moved before that uh before no, joy, I, I was i joy was opened i was there um i performed there a couple times okay at the original location before they moved over to the laundromat um, area co- or both? I, I think i performed at the original one maybe once or twice and then at the new one once or twice okay yeah, uh, and then moved over to uh, Manhattan. And I, I do want to talk uh, pretty extensively about what you're doing that is so different from the rest of what most magicians do, and particularly the venues uh, where you perform, because um, most magicians get flight time who are close-up guys, because to be a close-up guy, it's it's a cheap entry, if you will, just buy a deck of cards and then learn some tricks, and you can work a restaurant or your yeah. bars or wherever, like that kind of a thing. If you're a dove magician, you're an illusionist or whatever, it's harder to find a venue. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a cheap entry it's, at all. It's, no, it's not cheaper to begin <laughs> with. Exactly right. And uh, it's only about five or eight minutes or something. And then you got to right. bring another $20,000 illusion and pay your assistance yeah. and whatever else. And then trying to find some place to bring it in and to right. pack it in, pack it out, load out and everything. It gets to be uh, very difficult uh, and uh, it's and expensive. And so there are not a lot of places you can go and perform with that. You have a very minimalist, which goes back to what you were saying and chipping mm-hmm. away all the time of having something in which it looks like you walk on with nothing and come off with nothing. I mean, right. your your stage is, is fairly sparse. It's right. fairly barren, uh, and I'm sure that's intentional yep. uh, for what you do. In a longer performance, do you bring other things on, or do no? You just no. kind of have things out of your pocket then? or No, so like, you know, the performance for people um, who are listening to this who are at TAOM, um, who saw my performance last night, I did about a 12-minute set, mm-hmm. um, and that was three pieces. And, I mean, I really don't have 
a lot of props. I mean, I just really, I try to use, um, you know, use very like kind of common but elevated um, everyday items and then use them repeatedly, um, mm-hmm. use things. I mm-hmm. mean, again, this is a Eugene thing, you know, of idea. him. And I say, I, I, you know, I say this to my parents often, um, is I say, you know, like, I, I remember the first show that I did where I didn't have to check luggage. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and I stood there and I looked at my one carry on and I'm like Eugene would be proud. <laughs> um, and well, he I think had a book that he was recommending. Was it you or someone was telling me about this recently about how that it was uh, one bag because he was the one who was yeah. uh, recommending that he would have like two pair of underwear and two pair of socks and he'd be washing one one day while he'd wear it and then you know in the sink in the, in the hotel and then he'd wear that the next day and then well have you, less to pack yeah i mean like i i too kind of because of eugene i am mm-hmm. a fan of like this sort of minimalism minimals packing mm-hmm. um eugene actually recommended a book to me that is called the packing book that's what i'm talking about there you go yeah. okay thank um you. it's like it's i think it's from it's from like 1995 or something. So obviously, I this... imagine Magic Inc. had published that for him. Oh no, 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 this is no, no. This was, was not... this was published by like a flight attendant. Oh, okay, or something. Okay. This is totally outside that was one. of Magic. Okay, packing book. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, this is no. This is just literally about. For it is a other book like beings. this thick about just like <laughs> how to pack a suitcase. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, that book and... was not one thing to pack. No, oh no! Oh with. yeah! No, of course not. Um, no, they're probably like take this book, buy, pay us for it, and burn it. Um, and uh, no, and so, but like as as a result, and I was just talking about this with friends, and every person I bring this up with, they're like, "Oh, we do this too," and I'm like, "Oh, okay." Mm-hmm. Is you know, I mean, I have a multi-page like packing checklist as we should, and and so I have everything, mm-hmm. you know that. And, like, friends who I, whenever I talk about this with people, they're like, oh, I do the same thing. And so I just have, like, in my, like, now it's in my Google Drive, and every time I take a trip, I just print this out, and I have my, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably a hundred items. I mean, some of it's, like, you know, toothbrush, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, that's, like, always in my toiletry bag, but... You know, a lot of it is stuff that just to make sure, like, oh, if you're going somewhere in the winter, make sure you have gloves, you know, or whatever, if Mm -hmm. you're going to someplace that's much colder, much warmer. And so it's just about, like, how to be the most efficient when packing that one can. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, on this trip, I had to check a bag. It's the first time (laughs) I've had to check a bag in years. Um, And it's uh, only because of having to, like, bring a little bit more props for this and I brought books um, mm-hmm. and stuff like that but um, so that's another book to recommend is the packing book the packing book so this is the book club talk we're yes. having here today so yes welcome <laughs> welcome welcome to Scott's book club <laughs> that's right and now for a short message from our sponsor the Winter Carnival of Magic I'm here with Tom Vorjahan right now, who is the co-chairman of the Winter Carnival Magic that's happening on March the 9th through the 11th hey there Tom how are you I'm doing great, Scott. How are you, buddy? I am fantastic, and I'm looking forward to the Winter Carnival, and I know you got some top acts coming. Just give me a few of the names so people can expect to see here this year. Well, I'm bringing in 15 different performers, and nine of them are going to be lecturing. Uh, the shows are incredible. So just to give you a Friday night show, David Casaro is coming in from New York. Aaron Raditz is my illusionist down from Michigan. Uh, Sterlini's coming in from uh, Michigan, as well as Jay Brenniger, who's my variety artist, and Guy Bovley. 
Guy has not been doing many conventions, so this is exciting for us there. Saturday night show, Jonathan Neil Brown, a guy named Michael Blumke, who won the first place in close-up at the IBM convention, a relatively young man, not a junior, but uh, much younger than you and I. Uh, Christopher T. Magician, John Armstrong, and I believe the anchor of the final show will be Artem Shukin, who won the gold medal for the IBM. He kick butt in FISM. I think he's won Abbott's. So we're very excited. David Ginn's going to be there. Mike Hummer is a, a dealer as well as doing a tribute lecture for Al Cohen. He's been putting that together. It's going to be the first time I think that he's done that. Bill Gladwell is going to be doing a late night show on Thursday. And then Friday, he's doing a lecture at Jonathan Neil Brown's lecture. And we got nine lectures, nine lectures in three days. Incredible. Uh, two contests. It's Scott. It's going to be an incredible, incredible convention. It sounds like a lot of fun there in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is not far from Knoxville. So you can fly into Knoxville or Nashville and uh, get on down to Pigeon Forge. So and I bet a lot of listeners can drive over. Come on, drive down a four, five, six-hour drive. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's not bad. I agree. I've driven that before. So where can people go to get more information? Go to wintercarnivalofmagic.com. And I almost also will suggest that you should go to the convention guide page for the magicwordpodcast.com. And there will be a little audible blurb that Tom and I had talked in great detail about this and more. So Thank you, Tom, very much for giving us a little bit of information. I look forward to talking with you over the next few weeks to tell us more information. That sounds great. See you there, Scott. See you there. And now, back to our conversation with Jeanette Andrews. Uh, So with uh, that, uh, you were saying that... um, uh, you do have uh, minimalistic things on the stage, yes, on stage. that you're going to be performing for. Usually, do you have an, a 90-minute show that you do? Yeah, then? Okay. I mean, not 90. I do typically a top out at about, at about 60 Okay. Um, in terms of more. And I don't do, like, big stage performances. I mm-hmm. mean, I do, I do sort of um, – I mean, you know, parlor is kind of, you know, a lot of where I've landed mm-hmm. is, like, parlor and close-up. M- much of what I do – I mean, it's about half and half. Um, but but the kinds of things you're doing are not sophisticated manipulation and card handling and that I kind used of a thing. To. I mean, it's part of your show now. I wouldn't imagine necessarily, or is it? Um, not now. I used to have, and sort of my like thing that I really did was for like most of my teens and early twenties. Um, I did a billiard ball manipulation. Oh, really? Act. And yeah, like Gloria and so, Day. That was my main <laughs> like. That was kind of my staple thing. Mm-hmm. Um, was really, you know, that's what I did. Um, and so. You know, um, I don't, I don't really do it very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a myriad of reasons, but um, but yeah, but no, I did, I did do, you know, pretty hardcore billiard right. ball act. But that even that was like pretty. That was at the time that I was really starting to get more like sparse with my aesthetic, and so even that there just like wasn't a lot of stuff. Well, what I was getting to a little bit earlier, as far as having flight time and going and doing yes. kinds of shows, I was saying that if you just doing have a deck of cards and you can have cards will travel kind of a yeah. thing, and then you can do strolling and whatever kind of a thing. But in trying to find the and also a lot of corporate uh, gigs that uh, uh, we magicians would have and working for for different companies, that is part of your bread and butter. But what I find ultimately sure fascinating is. is how 
now that you have also cornered this market for uh, museums, art mm -hmm. museums in particular. Thanks. My background is I started out as an art major and uh, I loved art. And whenever I'm going to a city, I like to go to a museum. Same. And I spend a lot of time in the art uh, museum. I love zoos and art museums. Cool. Uh, and, um, yeah, when I was in art school, then I realized people were better artists than me. And it wasn't until many years later I realized I just have a different style. Right. Than they did. That's I probably, exactly what I was going to say. I could have stayed on. But yeah. I thought, oh, I'm not as good as those guys. So I was discouraged. Similarly to what magicians sometimes think, I'm yeah. not as good as that guy or gal. And so they right. quit. And they shouldn't because they just have their own style. style. So I'm encouraging people by listening to this to, if, if you drop something, pick it up and move on. Don't. That's not the end of the world. Right. If you're you know, not as good as you think you are, you will be. And just with your own style. And so right. keep at it, I guess. And, and yeah. you said, ask for some advice from mentors that you would respect. Yeah, that you respect, yeah. Right. Right. And so in but my point in all that is I love art and what you're doing. It just gives me goosebumps to think about how that you have incorporated magic to the art community. And what you're performing when I saw your show then last evening was how that you are posing almost in tableau. It reminded mm -hmm. me of my friend Cesario when he would do the Grand David show in which they would just kind of pose for a moment right. and they would stop. Yeah. Carissa Hendricks talks about this, I think, in her lecture then as well, in which that you just kind of stop for a moment and let people soak in mm -hmm. that, that picture of what right. they're actually seeing right. as if they are in a gallery or something. Right. And the fact that, going back to minimalism, uh, with no music, there was someone who was sitting next to me who said, this could use some music. I said, no, this is mm -hmm. perfect. It does not Thank need you. music because this is art. If you go to a museum, there is not music. There's right. music playing in your head as you're seeing something because this evokes a memory, a thought. And that's what you're, uh, anyhow. No, uh, I'm like, I got a 10-minute story about how that how, about how that doesn't have music and off. why. Take off a little bit about um, that. Tell us why. No, I am. Um, so, um so the um, for listeners, the piece he's referencing is I do um, I do a large scale um, cut and restored fabric, which is typically referenced as a Hindu turban mystery. Um, it's in tannin. It's, uh, it's in um, sorry, it's in tarbell, um, and um, and a couple of other places. And so um, with that piece, um, I actually that was that started um, in. I'm going to talk about this in a roundabout way, but um, we'll we'll circle back to then like my okay. my entry point like um, into me. So do I. Um, uh, but you're in squares, so I'm confused. <laughs> That's right, this is my Scott's wearing Scott's wearing <laughs> a shirt of only squares and rectangles. That's me. I'm a square um, guy. Oh, guy. So, square. Um, so I when I first. Um, uh, so that that piece actually um, so basically um, for uh, for context for listeners the piece that I performed was um, so it's, a, it's basically a large scale like cut and restore effect with a large piece of cloth it was originally presented typically with cheesecloth but um, but I do it with like um, pretty bright red um, like lining fabric and like suit lining fabric and um, it's like about three feet wide, probably about twelve feet yeah, long. Yeah, it's or about something. yeah. This the stay. I had to make it shorter than I typically do because of the angles on the stage mm. last night. Mm -hmm. But typically, I designed it originally to be. It was twenty-one feet long. Was the original? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um. So it was a lot smaller yesterday. But um, but so with that, then um, sort of the way that that piece unfolds is I... No pun intended, unfold. Uh, oh, Sorry. you got it. I, I didn't even get it. Um, the um, sort of the way it the way it occurs is um, I walk center stage, I just pause, and I just say, are you certain? 
and then I walk over and I um, there's sort of a pile of it's like a MacGuffin. It's kind of like, are you certain? What does that mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then I un sort of unravel what looks like a messy pile of sort of wrapped um, fabric mm. and see that I'm actually unwrapping a single rose and a bud vase, and then um, and then sort of abruptly snap the head off of the rose and crush all the petals in my fingers and they fall to the floor. And then I invite, and this is all happening in silence. And then, um, and so last night was a pretty big space, but usually in smaller spaces, you can actually, you can hear the head of the rose snap off and you hear all the petals hit the floor. Um, And then uh, I invite um, typically two women up from the audience, position them, um, and then spread the, you know, fabric out between them. It's cut, it's tied together, um, and it's restored, Mm -hmm. um, stretched, you know, basically the full width of a space between them. And then it, and then um, basically at the end after the fabric's restored and they both um, leave then I turn and I look back and the head of the rose has grown back and that was a surprise because I think people thought that it was over mm-hmm. and, then, and then somebody said hey look the rose yeah yeah it's just a little <laughs> little kicker ending um, and when you did choose to use music at the right moment it was an unusual kind of almost a tonal quality right. it was an unusual yeah. techno thing I yeah, guess. yeah 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 um, yeah I got um, uh I'm like, I'll circle back, but that was a, um, a band I got turned on to by, I used to be pretty involved in like the new music scene in Chicago. And I have mm. a friend who's the former um, composer in residence for Chicago Symphony. And that was a band that he loved and hmm. would wow, listen okay. to. And he was like, and he's like, here, this band is great. Very I'm artistic. Like, great. Um, yeah. Love yeah. it. Um, Worked perfect with it. Yeah, and, yeah, well, the, the whole, the whole thing with, um, with, Felt very Rothko like for some reason. Oh you know, so. well, that's the great. I'm obsessed with Rothko, so that's like the greatest compliment I could ever hope to get. Like <laughs> you're gonna make me cry. Um, uh, no, I'm like, oh, I'm in love with him. Um, you need to come to Houston with the Rothko. I have, oh, hey. and it's it's oh, only two miles that's, from my house. That's that's gonna be. Let me this, know when you're this, coming next time. This will turn into a 12-hour podcast <laughs> about my love for the Rothko Chapel. I'm not even kidding. Um, like no I'm serious okay um but this is um, great yeah 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 yeah. um uh I'm like if anybody has never been to the Rothko Chapel in Houston it is oh it's like one of the most beautiful experiences Mm. you'll ever have in your life um I went to a memorial service when a friend of mine had passed uh, there once it was that they had there yeah yeah Mm -hmm. very very good Oh. I know when uh, Doc Eason or Vito Lupo and some of the guys come to town, they go there just to meditate. Yeah, yeah. And a lot, a lot of people do. It's, it's, right. it's amazing. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I may be amending my final wishes <laughs> after this. I'm not even i got a kidding. place to stay. You can uh, uh, stay at my place. i got a well, room. Well, I'm going to – I I actually potentially have some projects coming up in Houston next ah, year. there you go. Year. Perfect. So I'm like, I'll, I'll invite you to come with me okay. when I go go to okay. the chapel. Um, uh, so, anyway. Um, so, back to the magic So back to the magic. So um, – <laughs> so, um the um so the the music choice so basically so that's so so that's the piece the whole uh cut and restored fabric rose gets destroyed heather rose goes back so that piece actually started as a commission from the museum of contemporary art chicago and mm-hmm. i'll circle back on kind of how uh, how this fits into sort of like the the museum and venue question um that you posed a little yeah, while ago but um but um that piece um, actually um, was I read in a book that Eugene lent me. There's a different version of it in um, the uh, David P. Abbott House of Mystery book, mm. and um, and I had Eugene had lent me the book, 
And I said to myself, it was a January night. It was January of 2017. And I'm not a New Year's resolution person at all, but I sat there and it was just like one of those days. It was like midnight. And I was like, you know what? This year I'm going to like learn this damn fabric thing. Like Mm -hmm. this is like I've been I've had it in my brain for a while that I'm going to learn this thing Um, because I just thought it was really interesting. The visuals um, are really striking i hadn't seen any i hadn't seen anybody do it um i later found out penn and teller do the greatest version of it surprise mm-hmm. surprise yeah. um and um but i hadn't i hadn't seen that at the time and i was like this is very it's very like my style and so i sat there and i went you know i should not be thank you um uh, a lovely gentleman in the room just closed the door so i'm yeah, very a little bit of noise outside um, so thank yeah you. thank you um so um I, um, so, um, I I got distracted. Yeah. So, um, so I'm sitting there on, on a January night and I'm going, okay, I'm going to learn the fabric this year. I really shouldn't be sitting here and reading this book at midnight right now because I have like a a 9am meeting at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and I need some rest. I, yeah, like I, I need to kind of prep for this and whatever, but I'm kind of sucked into this. So I finished reading, like, just the the section on this. Go to sleep. Like, eight hours later, I'm sitting there. I'm talking to this curator who I had worked with before. And um, and she's like, okay, yeah, we have a couple of projects we wanted to talk to you about, one of which is it's going to be the museum's 50th anniversary coming up. And we're talking to a couple of, like, Chicago-based artists on doing something to sort of respond um, or reflect on significant pieces um, that happened in the first couple of years of the museum and sort of Mm -hmm. create something in response to those. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. I'm like, do you have any in mind? And she goes, well, yeah, we have a couple... Have you seen images? I'm like, you'll appreciate this, Scott. She goes, have you seen images of the 1969 um, Christo and Jean-Claude piece where they wrapped mm-hmm. the entire MCA building yep. uh, with fabric? Fabric, right. And um, so again, for listeners, um, Christo and Jean-Claude was an artist duo um, uh, who did... Temporary did, art, if you will. Yeah. We, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> that did um, and are still executing. Um, uh, Christo since passed, but his, um, his artistic wife. partner, um, Jean-Claude, is still creating their work. Um, extraordinarily large scales of taking objects and wrapping them with fabric. I'm talking buildings, mm-hmm. islands, like large-scale work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they started making much smaller scale work um, in taking um, a lot of household objects like cans of paint and books um, and things like that and would wrap them and sort of bind them in cloth in, in really sort of beautiful ways um, but that had sort of a um, like just a kind of funky disheveled edge to it and so they said oh well have you seen the 1969 uh you know images that where crystal and jean claude wrapped the entire exterior of the original mca building with cloth Mm -hmm. and and i'm kind of sitting there and i'm going in my brain i'm like "Uh uh-huh and then they're like (laughs) and she goes and then she looks at me she goes do you think you could do anything with like a big piece of fabric 
And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> hmm. Yes, but it's going to cost I, you extra. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I said to myself, I, and I looked at her, and I, was, and I said, yeah, I said, I, my wheels are turning. I have some ideas. Because I didn't want to commit to it right there because I just read the book, and right. I didn't want to say, like, yes, I can definitely do this. So basically, to address the music question, um, is I spent, um, I spent the next, it was almost nine months, um, doing nothing nothing else other than the shows i was like like contracted to do working on that piece and mm-hmm. so literally the moment i opened my eyes until the moment i went to sleep every single day fabric 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 fabric, fabric every surface mm-hmm. in every i um i had a studio in the manic contemporary uh building in chicago and then i also um, my apartment and then I was doing some performances out of town off and on and so every surface and everywhere that I ever was was just covered in piles of fabric all the time mm-hmm. um, and this is all I was doing like 18 hours a day every single day mm-hmm. and um, and so I started off um, this was a very another like Eugene Lee moment where originally I wanted to make that piece I felt like it needed something else. I felt like, oh, this is too simple. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, because essentially I'm like, oh, you have basically like a big blank canvas. Like you could stretch this in front of people and you could have words on it or images on it or sure. something, right, you know. Right. And then it could be, it could have like, Company it, could be, about some, it yeah. could be about something else. Mm-hmm. And so, and um, And so I started doing a whole thing with like, you know, sort of poetic turns of phrase that could be, that could essentially be like, you know, sort of broken apart and come back together on the fabric. Like I, you know, I was painting things and printing things on the fabric and nothing like felt right. And so then I kind of, again, kept stripping stuff back and stripping stuff back. And then that's when I got to the like, stop it. Mm -hmm. What is this about? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is a cut and restored effect. Stop Mm -hmm. trying to make it be... At one point, I was like, oh, I wonder if you could, like, predict a word and, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, no, I'm like, no. this is not what this is. Stop. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I realized it just needed to be about the actual, you know, cut and restore effect. And let people draw their own conclusions just as they would a piece of art. Exactly. Well, and mm-hmm. so then what factored into that was then I started playing you- around with different types of music. Mm-hmm. So I just personally was, as I was rehearsing, um, I was like in a very big Radiohead phase. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I was just like rehearsing to a lot of Radiohead. And um, and so that was like, there was like one Radiohead song that I was listening to and I was like, okay. And at one point I needed the flight time on it. I was doing some, you know, parlor shows and I was like, oh, well, I'll just like throw this as a background track. Yeah. And it kind of worked, but... It wasn't, it didn't feel right. Didn't move um, it forward the way you wanted. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is just, it's, it's whatever. And, um, and then I went, okay. And so then I ended up using, I not swung the opposite direction, but then I ended up using, um, and like for people that saw this, you, you can, you know, Im- imagine how this looked is then I ended up using like the most dramatic piece of classical music like known to humanity um and so then it was just like you know it was like all these crescendos and it was just mm-hmm. like you know and like um and um and that was like 
too much. Like mm-hmm. then it was just like, this is a lot. Yeah. And like, you know, by then I was already starting to like, as I was like, it was very much like a trial by fire situation. Cause I needed to just do it in front of audience members. I needed to see how all this stuff was playing out. And so then I was like doing it with this super dramatic music. And I was like, you already have this like giant thing. Um, that's big and visual and it's moving and like you know it's already very dramatic you don't need really dramatic music it's too much and it Mm -hmm. just was like takes away from that right it was like too crazy Mm -hmm. and so then um so then i ended up going then pendulum swung the other way and i was like well what about like philip glass and so i was like i'm just gonna have like the most like I ended up finding a really beautiful version of Koyan Escanzi played on the harp. Mm. And so then I was like, let's find the most like repetitive minimalist harp right. music possible. Mm-hmm. And so then I was doing it with that. And same thing, it was like, it was all like kind of working, but not really. And, um, and so like that, so then suddenly I got into this, like I was doing it with this very sparse harp music. And I was like, this is better Mm-hmm. But it's still not right. And then I was, I was getting, honestly, I was, like, really f- getting frustrated. And I, had, I was also just practicing with, like, a bunch of different types and pieces of music. I mean, I was probably practicing with, like, 20 different pieces of music. And, um, and nothing was landing. But the, the Philip Glass was, like, the best, but it still wasn't working. And so then at one point, I think, honestly, I was just, like, so pissed off mm-hmm. that I was just, like, oh, screw all this. And I was just started practicing in silence. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, this is it. And then what I ended up figuring out as a magician was, and again, the space that we were in last night is a lot bigger than I usually do, especially in terms of the depth of Mm -hmm, the room. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The thing that works really well with that piece with the silence is that it very much helps the magic it helps the magic tremendously because um, what you get is you get the sound confirmation of everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, when when I'm in smaller spaces and the woman cuts the fabric, you hear the scissors going through the cloth. Oh, good point. And so there's mm-hmm. no question for anybody it's in the cut. audience. Like, for example, there's a lot of we hear a lot of feedback in cut and restored routines of people being like, oh, they didn't really cut the rope. They think it's like not like lay people think like, mm-hmm. oh, the magician's not really cutting it. I, I don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what they think that means. <laughs> but somehow they think things are not really cut. And so there it is like, here's a, a lay person from the audience who's taking scissors and you hear it being cut. And so you get not only the visual confirmation, but you get the auditory confirmation. And then same thing when it comes back and the fabric got a little tangled last night, but normally when it gets restored, there's a moment at the end where then I can take it and you can actually like, I like do this and like show that it's restored Mm -hmm. and it makes a very clear like popping sound. Mm -hmm. And so same thing, you hear that it's like the fabric is one piece. Like you can't, like if it was like... There's no music that's going to destroy that. And so, right, but you can hear that it's not like glued together or taped together. Like you Mm. couldn't, it wouldn't make that sound. And so you get all of these 
you know, mm, auditory. different auditory confirmations mm -hmm. of something being cut, something being put to back together in a way in which we as people have deep with the music right that that we as people have deep understandings for the ways in which materials work mm -hmm. and this just again it's confirmation of that that you don't get wow. any of that with music and um and so as soon as i started practicing with music and i without music and then i just like standing there just you know in piles of fabric and i and then i'm hearing yeah and i'm going oh, I can hear that this is cut. I can hear that this is restored. Sure. I can hear all of this stuff. And I'm going, oh, this is much better. Well, I wanted to, you to expand on that. I'm glad that you did. So this way, people who are listening will have another way of looking at it and thinking about magic and thinking about music and whenever they incorporate uh, that then as well. Music's huge. It's, it, it really is. It is very integral to uh, the performance of magic, close-up or parlor or whatever you're going to be doing because yeah. people will also, whenever they hear that music again, I mean, there are things, times when I remember watching David Copperfield and he, I assume, had rights to certain music. When I sure. hear that, it's like, oh, I remember that uh -huh. particular trick or something. Yeah. I've got some other questions I want to ask you before we start to uh, wrap up over here but before i get into that because we had an audience i'd ask if there were some other questions or anybody have a question or something they wanted to ask uh while we're here that we haven't yet covered if not then i was going to continue on yeah daryl do you have a favorite book by eugene that you keep by your side all the time he was asking if she has a favorite book by eugene that she keeps by her bedside or some huh, close um, that you would recommend speaking of book club yeah <laughs> um i mean i love um you know, the Chicago tapes probably is my favorite, um, which I feel like is one that is not like talked about as much. Um, is it a book or is it actually you say Chicago it's both. tapes? It's, it's okay. both. There's a book, but then there actually is also, I, I don't know if it's still. It used to be a cassette oh, tape, right? Right. Yeah. Well, at one point, the cassette tapes, they did digitize. And um, what text to I mean speech to text or something? I, no, or? no, no. It's actually like the interviews with him. Oh, no, gotcha. no, no. Okay. Like it's actually like I just meant you could like download it or get it as a I CD see. or Maybe something. Maybe through library.com or something. Um, I don't remember, but I know at one point as a teenager I did have the actual interviews on CD and I listened to those CDs a thousand times yeah um, good. so yeah good question yeah that's a great question anybody it's else a, yeah it's great it's a little under the radar of his stuff have something uh, if not, let me ask you then, um, to start to wrap up over there, we talked about art museums and mm -hmm. having that as a venue, and yeah. that's a, an unusual place. Mm -hmm. I've worked several museums, and for a while they had at the Museum of uh, Science in Houston. Uh, they had a, uh, Scott Servine had uh, curated this uh, magic uh, as being a theme, and I was one of the people, and John cool. Carney and Christopher Hart and some others uh, oh, had come yeah, to town. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, 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 and it was great. And uh, uh, Greg Lancaster, you were there. I remember that you... Uh, it was it was a pretty cool exhibit, wasn't it? Fantastic yeah. Um, but since then, because the museum liked us, that we have since been back, and that was probably That's 15 awesome. years ago or That's so, great. at least, yeah. And they're still using magicians for some of their events. I know Jamie Salinas awesome. and other people you know, still do that. So the museum, I know, is a, uh, uh, a venue that some people could use, but yours is a little bit different because I'm assuming the kind of people who you're performing for are members of the mu uh, museum, these art museums. Do you do galleries or something yeah. sometimes as well, and gallery openings? Yeah, so... I mean, you know, as a as a way to kind of speak about this, my my, you know, museums and galleries—that's my niche. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I 
became and and is also like my life project so i became very interested in trying to get museums uh to kind of get magic into museums uh when i was about 15 um i um you know again i i grew up in suburban chicago um i felt like a lot of you know a lot of as i was starting to develop my style mm-hmm. and try to figure out you know as a teenager it was something place you just naturally gravitated towards yeah so i mean that's where i just there. yeah it felt like mm-hmm. home to me yeah. and then at the same time i'm like trying to figure out my own style my own goals with magic as a, you know as a kid basically mm-hmm. and at the same time you know it was basically like all these things converging so you know as a kind of young to mid-teen I started learning a lot more about magic history and you know was discovered that oh magic like within like the like overarching history um used to be a very like culturally prestigious mm-hmm. thing and in some cultures and countries Still it is, is. But, right but not in but, America but so not much. in America and I mean I grew up you know in the 90s and was seeing like a very specific set mm-hmm. of things mm-hmm. you know in in pop culture and so I was like wait what you know and so I was that was you know news to me yeah and um you know and you know Max Maven has this this great quote, um, which is, you know, that the magicians of the 20th century accomplished a great feat. They took something truly profound and rendered it trivial. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I, like, agree. It's true. Yeah. Um, I yeah. agree. So we're trying to bring it back. That and, is our, our... Well, and so, you know, so I definitely think that, like, so I kind of started to become aware of the greater arc of history. And then at the same time, got very interested in philosophy that was just my hobby because I was the most popular kid in school um and um and so um I I got very interested in aesthetics basically mm-hmm. um I just started reading large uh anthologies of philosophy and I was always drawn to essays on aesthetics mm-hmm. um uh and um uh, and existentialism because I was a 15-year-old yeah. as, you know. As, as 15-year-olds uh, are as, they're drawn to naturally. Well, well no, I mean, because you're, you know, everybody's moody and wants to, oh, and wants to be, and wants to be Jean-Paul Sartre, yeah. so, you yeah. know. Um, Not just girls, but uh, um, boys too. That's yeah, you no, know, that's what I, that's what yeah. I said, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I um, got very interested in aesthetics and I kind of went, hmm, as I'm reading all this stuff and going, well, a lot of the questions that are being investigated by philosophers in under uh, under the umbrella of aesthetics are a lot of the same questions that are very central to magic mm-hmm. in terms of how do we understand you know what constitutes an object around us how do we how do i know that the color red that i see is the same color red that you see mm-hmm. how do we understand mm-hmm. you know i mean if you go way back in the ancient philosophy you know forms etc you know all this sort of stuff i'm going mm-hmm. well a lot of these questions are also very intrinsic to magic mm-hmm. and philosophers are investigating these through the lens of art and like formal artistic like fine art practice um and a lot of what i was reading was centering around painting and sculpture and then i was going well this also makes sense like art makes sense to me as a vehicle to also explore sort of the questions in magic the way that art is sort of has structure to look at some of these questions and ideas and i was like I don't really see this happening 
I like I want to do it and yeah. like I you know this feels like it just it wasn't even really like a question or a conscious thought I was just like oh this is what I'm gonna do sure and um and I also was very interested in trying to sort of recontextualize magic in like in spaces and in ways that I hadn't grown up with and so um I in high school uh, I, God, now I'm wondering if these, if my parents still have any of these. Um, I would sit during my classes and I would like sketch out um, essentially almost like floor plans of like local galleries and museums and envision wow. what a magic performance would look like in them. In this them. was like, yeah, this okay. was like my like 15 year old <laughs> mental exercise when I was bored like in how class. How far away would the audience be and how much room yeah. do I need in order to perform and what yeah. tricks I would do in the exactly. stage area and yep. what are the acoustics like and exactly. et cetera. Wow. So mm. Like almost verbatim that. <laughs> yep. And so, so somewhere if they're not, didn't get recycled a million yeah. years ago, um, maybe my parents still have some of those. But, um, but being the minimalist, so you, you, you are. Well, my, probably... well, no, I don't know. No, this is my parents. <laughs> um, different story. So, yeah. uh, they're like me, probably a hoarder. I know my, no, my, they're, they've gotten rid of a lot. Okay. It's good. Um, but I, so I was very interested in saying like, what would a magic performance look like in a museum? Because I already was going to museums. Mm -hmm. It's part of your life. uh, Right. Just personally, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I was going, well, what would this look like? What would this, what type of magic would I be doing? I was Mm. like, I have no idea. Like Mm. what, you know, if you're in, if you're in a space where it's you and a bunch of, you know, Alexander Calders, how do you, how do you be in dialogue with that? How do you do something that's, that's responding to like very significant sculpture Mm -hmm. where you're not just doing a magic show Mm -hmm. and what makes sense? And so I started to really try to think about what that might look like. And, and so then, then became what to this day is still the greatest obstacle of my life, which is like, how does one actually do this? How do you actually get magic into museums? How do you get, you know, curators and, you know, to, to be excited about this? But I would think that being the art, artists that they are, the curators, would be more interested in thinking outside the proverbial box to be creative and say, well, this is something that could fit. It's a little bit different. Some, sometimes, yes. Sometimes you have to get the no. right person, I guess. Yeah, you have to get the right person, and it requires, I feel like 90% of what I do is like educating people mm-hmm. um, about why it makes sense and okay, why sure. what I do makes sense. Same thing with um, trade show magicians, trying to get to exactly. the, the company to understand, to understand why, why this helps. How you stop the audience with magic. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, so it's a, it's. Um, so what I hear you saying, it's important to find a niche uh, that you are comfortable with. Right. And if you go someplace, think how can I do magic? Let's say you hang out at Starbucks. I don't care wherever it is. Right. Or the library or someplace yes. that you enjoy going. Right. A church or That's wherever. That's very natural right, to, to you. you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then find the way find to work a, in that venue. A hundred percent. I could not agree with you okay. more because I see where we're going. because for me, again, like I feel very like literally. I feel at home in museums. Mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like that literally is one of the places where I feel comfortable. So find your home, and, and so then fi- right. you so can find yourself. Right, yes. And so then you can so find your own character to put your right. magic around then, that. Right, because then it's like what, it's exactly what we, I think we all talk about exactly what you're referencing of like what, you know, in terms of a performance, what's natural to you? Mm-hmm. Who are you as mm-hmm. a performer? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. for example, like, 
I know I am not funny at all. So like me doing something, like if I were to try to be like, oh, I'm going to try to like do a bunch of comedy clubs, that would be the most disastrous idea in the world. You you kind of remind me of, I'm trying to think of the lady's name who does uh, personal performance art and she's one who just sits in the chair. Oh, Marina Bramovich. Bramovich, exactly. Well, thank you. Um, (laughs) I mean, also like, you know, to have any any reference to her and me in the same sentence is is an honor. But, um, But yeah, so like, you know, that, you know, again, it's like, if I were to try to, like, I may love going and seeing comedy, and I have friends mm-hmm. who are comedians, and I have undying respect for what they do, because that is so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that, like, But that I comes easy to some people, right. just as what comes and, easy to you. Right. You have to identify so, what it is right. that is you. And that's, that's 100% it. Mm-hmm. It's like, for mm-hmm. me, like, I could never walk into a comedy club and be like, Oh yeah, this this feels. Th- yeah, I'm, I'm at home yeah. here. This is my vibe. I instead go and I I'm love like, a tiki bar myself. You there know. you go. That I mean that. Have a be, martini and I'm fine. There, I like. See, I love that. Um, I've I've not seen like tiki bar magic. Now I want to see it. Oh, there you go. That's um, something to do. Yeah. Um, you know. So I think that's been so much of it. Is so I basically, you know, as a teenager and then into my early adulthood and now, you know, tried to figure out, um, you know. Uh, how to get magic into these spaces. And then also, you know, it affords me a lot of opportunities to have conversations with the public about magic Mm -hmm. and about what magic is and what magic can be. Mm -hmm. Because I think, especially for people sort of in our time period, we have very, the public has extraordinarily limited interaction with magic. Correct. That is all typically, you know, if like when we talk to lay people, I feel like I hear, you know, two or three answers, which is, you know, people saying, I saw magic at a birthday party when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So like, it, you know, I've, I'm speaking to adults, you know, sometimes people are like, I don't know, I saw a magic show once like 40 years ago. Yeah. Or um, seeing it on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have no like real firsthand experience right. of it. Um, and then maybe once in a, insanely blue moon I hear of somebody saying oh I saw something that my company did but even mm-hmm. that almost never, never happens. happens right so people have such and limited they never remember the name of a magician who's on a cruise ship either it's like oh we saw a guy or you know did this yeah same thing right. every once in a blue moon I hear people yeah. say I saw somebody on a cruise so it's like people have such limited um, times for where they actually see magic in live right. and so um, you know so I think for me also a big part of what I do is trying to, you know, give the public a little bit of insight into like the, the, in ways that I can, mm-hmm. um, the back end of what we do and not in terms of like any exposure or anything like that, but just like basically just like the conversation that we just had of mm-hmm. like that magic has an extraordinarily rich history. And, you know, for me, exactly. I spend, you know, a lot of times, you know, and, you know, I spend, you know, years working on stuff and, uh, you know, and so I don't have this massive repertoire, um, but, you know, I try to be super intentional with what I do. And, you know, there is that vernacular in the public that magic is easy to do. Because, of course, people's other main exposure is magic kits, which it should be. It should be. And, um, And so, of course, like, 
that is designed for people to have a first exposure where you're not instantly frustrated mm -hmm. and instantly being like, oh, no, this is, right. yeah, is going to take me right. three years of practice. Oh, right. crap. Right. You know, forget it. So people's most people's exposure are magic kits. Every now and again, a library book um, or a book or something that maybe they right. got a kid as a gift or whatever. And then um, and then for a lot of people and again, like, you know, thank God for this. But um, but like the literal languaging of easy to do via like t like TV magic cards, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so and YouTube. Well, and yeah. And then that's a whole that's a whole other that's conversation. Right, right. But um, but like, you know, so trying to let people know that like there is an extraordinary amount of like work and time and effort and energy to make it look artistic to make to mm -hmm. to have to do what we do mm -hmm. and that this is built on like centuries or millennia of history and mm -hmm. that there's so many things that are going on that the average That's public right. doesn't know about that that are things that I think that I can ethically talk about but that the lay public finds fascinating like people are kind of like oh how do you you know kind of like how do you pick people from the audience mm -hmm. and it's like how do you deal with hecklers or different kinds well, of well yeah i mean thankfully but, i don't yeah i don't no, but, i don't but, have but, that but but like but like choosing volunteers is very important and you know this is something for me that like i uh, talk about with the public because i think people are always like oh what you know where i'm like no if i'm doing if i'm doing you know 45 minute show for example and i know i have you know seven pieces that need audience people I know the, and I hate to do this because it's a lot of kind of stereotyping of people but like it's like I know I need extremely specific parameters for those right. seven people and the second I walk out I'm just scanning and I'm like okay I need a man who's probably 60 plus and is probably making this sort of facial you quickly make those decisions and then I need a woman yeah. who is ideally not wearing long sleeves to be doing this and I need a woman who's wearing flat shoes to be doing this and so I'm like I'm just scanning and looking at everybody mm -hmm. and trying to pick those people out and like so that's the sort of thing that's like oh that's just one of 800 things that i'm doing mm -hmm. while i'm also doing 800 other right. things and so the lay public is like very interested in the sort of thing that i think does shed light on the fact that like oh this actually is not just oh i got a magic kit and i did something in it and you know said it was magic and now we're done right yeah yeah well, listen, this has been a fascinating hour, and uh, it can go on much longer. I can see a lot of things we have in common that would lead to a longer conversation. I want to thank you very much for thank being you. a guest. And Thanks for the, having me on. Well, the name of the podcast is called The Magic Word, and I always ask, uh, close by asking my guests what it is. Is there a philosophy of life? What is your magic word? I don't mean like abracadabra, but what is it that you live by? What is your... Oh my God! What Your a great what a what a great question. <laughs> I mean, I again, I just really feel like this. Uh, you know, it's always the resurfacing thing of the Eugene. There's the way of the potter and the way of the sculptor, and um, it's been prevalent in my life for you know last 15 years and especially last few months it's been like really in my head daily so yeah be the sculptor be the sculptor that sounds great well Jeanette thank you very much this thank has been just so fascinating much. and I want to thank also the audience yes, very much thank you for all <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed this as much as I did so I want to thank my guest again uh, that was Jeanette Andrews and so until next time this is Scotty out thanks Scott
Well, that was some fun and also quite educational. I thought for me, I enjoyed hearing a different perspective on how to present magic on stage. And not just on stage, but also close-up, as she also performs very artistically as she does her close-up with uh, gypsy thread and other kinds of card work that she does that has, uh, I don't know how else to say it, just an artistic spin to it. It's different from what I have seen other presentations by other magicians. Uh, Anyhow, spectacular. Thank you very much, Jeanette, for being my guest this week. It's been just a lot of fun. It was also fun to present this podcast recording in front of a live group. I know that more and more podcasters around the world are starting to provide this kind of a service to their audience to give them an opportunity to see how the podcasts are made and actually be a part of the audience as it is actually being recorded live. And hopefully there'll be some other opportunities at other conventions where I'll be attending that maybe the organizers can set aside a little time or at least a room where I could go and record an episode for an upcoming podcast with some of the talent uh, that's there and then allow the registrants to come in and participate and ask questions and be part of an upcoming podcast. So if you are an organizer of a convention, you might think about uh, allowing me to do just that. I would certainly like to uh, help if I can. And in addition to that, I've also got lanyards that I can provide for you then as well as an organizer. So this way, it will save you some money on the lanyards uh, that I've got for all of the registrants. Anyhow, you can reach out and contact me at scott at themagicwordpodcast.com and we can talk more about it. Well, I want to remind everybody again to register for the Winter Carnival of Magic coming up March 9th through the 11th in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be just an outstanding lineup of talent, and you need to be there as well. It's going to be just a lot of fun. So, again, I hope that you will go to the website. That information is over on the convention guide where you can click on that, and it will take you there, and you can register and sign up for this year's convention. Well, this has been a very excellent and rather lengthy podcast, a little bit more than the usual hour that we have. So we're going to start to wrap up here. And again, want to remind you that next week we'll be coming to you from Columbus, Ohio, where we'll be attending the Magi Fest and giving you three different daily reports of what's going to be going on. So even if you can't attend, this is the next best thing to being there. Also, I want to remind you to sign up for our pod letter, so this way that you are kept up to date on what's happening from week to week and also some suggestions from the archive. So, until next week, stay well, get booked, and remember to be a sculptor, not a potter. This is Scotty out. Scotty out.